Anybody here ever been tempted? How did you do? It's kind of like I, I got a friend who said, you know, I, uh, I can resist anything but temptation. Is there anybody here kind of like that? You know, just uh, anything but, but temptation I'm good with. Well, today we're going to look at Jesus' baptism, and then we're going to look at the battle that he ultimately faced right afterwards. And so I want you to turn to the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you're a guest today, again, I want to welcome you. And, or if you've just been here, like I, I've said it, and I'll say it for a couple more weeks, don't panic. We, we will take off larger sections of this Gospel once we get through the first chapter. But for right now, this is what we need to do and some of the things that I feel like the Lord wants to just deposit into the heart and life of our congregation. Uh, we're going to look at two passages today. We'll start in Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized in the Jordan by John. Now as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You're my beloved Son, I take delight in you. I just love those words. So powerful for a father to say that. Now notice verse 12, and it says immediately. You'll notice in the gospel of Mark, this word is used over 40 times. And I think it's probably because he was probably a little bit younger when he wrote this. And as we noted a couple of weeks ago, writing the words of what Peter probably said. And as you know, Peter was all full of action, vim, and vigor. And so Mark immediately, he underscores this. In the first chapter alone, the word immediately is used eight times. And I think it's 40 times throughout the gospel of Mark. So he says, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Who? Jesus. And Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. What was taking place there? He was being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and then the angels began to serve him. Now, in between being tempted, being with wild animals, and the angels ministering to him is a whole lot more. So if you would, in just a moment, I'll have you take your finger and kind of get it wet, and we're going to look over at Luke chapter 4. It gives us a little more detail on this. But here it talks about when he says that he was in the, in, in the, in, in the wilderness with wild animals. By the time that Mark was writing this, it was probably 60, between 60 and 70 AD. It would have been during the, 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 the rule of Nero, who was probably one of the, the most wicked and debauched anti-Christian Nero Caesars that Rome ever had. And if you know, if you remember that time, that's when uh, Christians were literally being wrapped in animal skins and they were being fed to the lions in the Colosseum, and that was part of their sport. And Mark is almost making this point to the people that he's writing to in the sixth decade of that first century. And he's saying, listen, Jesus faced this too. He faced wild animals when he was in the desert, even as you're facing wild animals today. And I want you to know you can get through it just like he did because he's with you. But I want us to look, just kind of do a flyby here on baptism. You see Jesus' baptism. You'll look in verse 4. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're a thinking person, you're going to go, well, why in the world would Jesus have to do that? I mean, he's the sinless son of God. Why in the world would he have to be baptized? 
Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, and there's a, I'm going to give you four of them. Number one, this is a decisive moment for Jesus. For 30 years, he had, begin his, he had been waiting to begin his work. When John arrived on the scene, Jesus knew because of the prophet's past, the prophetic words that had come through the prophets, that when John the Baptist came on the scene, it was time for his ministry to start and to be inaugurated. Throughout the New Testament, you will see whenever anybody followed Jesus, made a decision, a repentance, and say, I want to follow Jesus, soon after, throughout the book of Acts, you'll see that they were baptized. And so for Jesus, this begins this time where he says, I am now taking center stage. I am now going to become part of the redemptive main player and act of history. And so it's a decisive moment when he really steps to the plate and takes over. Secondly, it's an identifying moment. Although Jesus had no sin, we believe that he really wanted to identify with John the Baptist's movement and moving people toward God through this act and with us, and he wanted to identify with us in our sin. See, like any great leader, Jesus led from the middle as one of us. Remember, one of his name is Emmanuel. One of his references, Emmanuel, which simply means God with us. And so Jesus is leading from the middle, and he wants to identify with us and, and in, in, in this process. And in the same way, when we're baptized, we are identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection. On your notes there, you'll see Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. It says this, or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in a new way of life. And what, he's, what, what Paul is saying there, he says that, that baptism pictures the death and resurrection of Jesus. You go down into the water, you're dying, you're going into the tomb, you're raised back up, you're washed, you're cleansed, not because of baptism, but it's symbolic of what Jesus did for each and every one of us when we receive him. Now, the word baptized, literally, baptizo, it has, when it, when it was initially it became known, it had to do with dying of cloth. The material would be baptized in colored dye, and it would literally take on the color of the dye. Therefore, baptism is not only a symbol of dying, going down into the tomb and dying with Christ, but it's also a symbol of dying, really taking on the, the, the being and the life and the look of Jesus Christ as well. See, Jesus really was dipped in the same waters as us. No, we're not in the Jordan. We, aren't, we haven't been baptized in the Jordan, maybe some of you, but even though it happened 2,000 years ago, we're separated by 2,000 years. We're separated geographically by 6,000 years. We all do this same action and activity of baptism. And not only does his baptism illustrate his identification with us, but it also shows his submission to his heavenly father. Because if it pictures death, as he gets baptized, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm coming and I'm submitting, Lord, to your plan, Father, to your plan for me to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. And so as he's going under, he's simply saying, Father, this is my mission. This is what I've come to do. So Jesus identifies with us his submission to the Father as we identify with him through this process. Now, thirdly, it's an affirming moment. When Jesus is baptized, three things happen. First of all, the heavens were torn open as he comes up. Secondly, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And then you've got God's voice that says, you are my son whom I love. 
and in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus, as he begins his mission, his father, Father God gives, us, gives him this affirmation. Have you ever had to take a big step in your life? Have you ever said, man, I gotta do this, I wanna do this, and you're not sure, and in the throes of the decision, you have second thoughts. Ah, oh, should I do it, can I do it, am I able to do it? And isn't there something powerful about your father figure who comes up and maybe steps into your life and just says, you know what, son, you know what, honey, you can do it. I believe in you. This is, you were, you were made for this. Or maybe it's not your father. Maybe it was some other authority figure, some other figure that is, is kind of an authority or someone you looked up to, and they would have said the same words to you. And they said, go for it. You can do it. Now, I, I don't know if Jesus needed that. Probably not. But there's something very powerful for him that as he gets ready to head into battle and fulfill his ministry for the next three years, that he gets to go with a father that says, you know something, son? I'm really proud of you. You know, something, son, I love you. I accept you. And man, I'm pleased with you. See, Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says this, you all are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Again, kind of that picture of the die thing. We, we start to really want to become, take on the essence of who Jesus is. When you decide to follow Jesus and you get baptized, you become affirmed by God. And I tell people this when I used to teach the baptism class. Listen, when you go under those waters of baptism and you come up, I want you to be assured that Jesus, the Father, they're going to say the same things to you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I am pleased with you and thankful that you're doing this as an act of obedience and submission to my life. I'm pleased with you. That's why we, we really invite people to make sure that they go through the process of baptism. Lastly, it was an empowering moment for Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And at that moment, from then on, Jesus lived and he ministered in the power and life of the Holy Spirit. And see, for you and I, baptism is literally a next step where we trust his word, we trust in obedience to follow Jesus in his ways. And the same things happen to you and me. First of all, we identify with the body of Christ. We identify with other believers and Christ followers. We receive the approval of the Father. And I believe it's part of the empowering work of the Spirit in us. The reason I believe some people, some Christ followers, have a hard time moving forward in areas of their life, it's because they haven't taken this critical step of obedience. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, Jesus said this, 19 through 20. He said, go therefore and be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was not a casual suggestion, loved ones, but it was a divine command. And I see people who don't move into the next progressive steps of spiritual discipline and in their spiritual journey. And then they wonder why they lack some of the power. They lack some of the, the sense of vitality in, in what Christ has for them. And I would encourage anybody here that if you haven't been baptized, get baptized. It's always good to follow Jesus, the greatest leader of all time. Not only to do what he says, but to do what he did. 
As a matter of fact, in case you didn't know, we're going to have baptism at the amphitheater on Easter, so we're really excited about that. And we announced that last week in Clem, and I don't know if he's here today, and I don't mean to embarrass him, but it was really cool because he comes up to me after service last week, and I was talking to his wife, and then he kind of looks at me, and he goes, Pastor, I, I want to be the first one baptized at the amphitheater. And I said, right on. That's cool. And I said, I'll make sure that you are. And he's walking away. I said, oh, by the way, Clem, come here. And I said, this is what I want you to do. It's taking you a while to get to this place. So I want you to work on your lung capacity a little bit because it's taking you so long. I'm probably just going to hold you down a little longer (laughs) because I want to make sure that you remember this time and don't forget it. So work on your breathing. And there's probably some others of you I might say the same thing to. But uh, I, I anticipate and really do look forward to that time where we get to baptize. So come and, and if you haven't done that yet, they're actually going to have a meeting today after, after this service and uh, be a part of that. And get baptized. Follow Jesus because he did it for you and with us. I want you to notice now Jesus' battle. That was just kind of a flyby on his baptism. But if you would turn to Luke chapter 4 now. And I want to read to you in more detail the story of this epic battle that he had to win from the beginning because if he loses this battle, uh, we don't get to be where we are today. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus returned from the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. From the Jordan, referencing again that he was just baptized. And he was led by the Spirit underscore that he was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days <coughs> excuse me <coughs> and he was what led to be what to be tempted by the devil now understand whenever you read the gospel writers none of them try and explain or you know philosophize about the devil it's there it's the reality of it and you know sometimes we have people today that says you know that's just archaic that's way back from people when people were superstitious and and there was some of that back then but can I just tell you something there's a real devil you got to be able to understand evil in our culture and our society and the evil that men do besides just the sin There has to be, as Ephesians 6 talks about, this demonic influence within the context of our cosmos that really is influential in the things that we do and the decisions that we make. And and, and so this isn't just some kind of made-up little fairy fairy tale. We saw the enemy started in Genesis chapter 3 where he basically tries to sabotage God's plan of perfection through Adam and Eve when he tempts them, Adam and Eve, to partake of the fruit on the tree that God said, that's my tree, stay away from it. So we believe in a literal devil here. Now, Jesus, and notice the, you'll see the progression here. I just, it's, you know, this, the, the guy's pretty smart, and he still works the same way today as he always has. But it says, in the 40 days, for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, Jesus ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Get that? He was hungry. Listen, I get hungry after 20 minutes, and you know, I'm hungry right now. And and Jesus is 40 days, and then it says the devil comes. And then he says to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. You have to understand back in those days that those, uh, those, the, the bread there, they had these limestone rocks, and they were just all over the place. 
And uh, a lot of times they were, the way they were shaped, they'd actually look like little loaves of bread, except they were rocks. So you can imagine Jesus, by this time, he's probably even hallucinating a little bit. So the temptation is really strong. But this is what Jesus answered him with. It is written, man must not live on bread alone. So what does the enemy do? Ah, that didn't work. So he took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you the splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Now, again, if you're thinking, you're going, how in the world can the devil make that kind of a, uh, a statement? Well, it's because of this. See, in the, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which is so foundational to everything in the scriptures, God made man, you and me, man and woman, Adam and Eve, really to be the procurators, the overseers, the take carers, the stewards of this earth and this world, to oversee it, the kingdoms, the people, the earth itself. But when they chose to disobey, moved out of the relational orbit of where God wanted them and to choose to disobey and go their own way, it is at that point that really, literally, the the earth was then turned over to Satan and his emissaries. And so he is now what Ephesians calls, Ephesians 6, they are the powers and principalities and rulers and authorities of this world. But it will be taken back someday. Now hear me. This is really important because of Jesus' work on the cross. You can take it back now, today, to now in your own life. But throughout the world, there is this influence. That's why he's able to make that statement. Jesus doesn't say you're a liar. This is what he says. Jesus answered him and said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. Well, so then the, the, the devil took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, this is interesting because the devil's quoting Psalm 91. What does that tell you? The devil knows the word, the Bible. He's quoting it to Jesus. Pretty impressive. Now, hear me. This is really important. Do you know the reason why so many of us really are not victorious in our life? It's because we probably don't even know the word. I'm sure most of us, many of us don't know the word, even to the degree that the enemy of our soul does. So he could say something. And we go, well, well, it kind of sounds like the word of God. And we just fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. Because he will, he will be whispering, or his emissaries will be whispering these kinds of temptations in your ear. And you'll notice Jesus, every time he says, every time the devil says something, Jesus does one thing. He quotes the Old Testament, quotes the word to him, does it again. And Jesus answered him. It is said, a lot of your Bibles say, it is written, do not test the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, 16. It's probably one of my favorite scriptures in the negative in the whole Bible. It says, and after the devil had finished, listen to this, every temptation. He finishes every temptation in these 40 days with Jesus. And then it says he departed him for a time. Some translations will say it this way, that he departed him until a more opportune time. 
And never forget, loved ones, that's how the enemy works in your life. You may win a battle, but there will always be other battles that will come. And that's why the scripture says in Proverbs that pride cometh before a fall. Never think that just because you win one battle that you're in the clear. Because and one of the things that I've learned about my life is we have these whack-a-mole issues. You know, you whack them down, you think, okay, good, dead, gone, finished. You know, it might be a week, a month, a year, 10 years later, boom. The devil will wait until a little more opportune time. So be aware. Be on the alert. 1 Peter 5 says that he's like a roaring lion, seeking, walking, and seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever noticed how quiet lions are? Until they roar. Now, one scholar said it this way. I think it was G. Campbell Morgan, and he said this. You don't got to worry about the lion because he was dealt with on the cross. He can roar, all he can do is scare you, but his teeth are gone and all he can do is gum you to death. So, you know, that's, that's about the limitations that he has other than what you give him because he's been defeated on the cross. So this is this glorious expression of Jesus now. He's in the, he's in the throes of facing a battle. He's just come out of this glorious time of being baptized. Everybody's, yes, the Son of God and the, 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 the Trinity has been there together for the first time in years. And now this Holy Spirit, this Trinity, compels him to drive him out into the desert to face the devil. Here's a great principle that it's important to know. That after every big moment that you have with God, it will always be followed by a test. Almost every time you make a commitment to God, it will almost always be tested. Can't tell you how many times people come, Pastor, I've made this decision, I'm committed to this. And I go, oh, that's great. And then I'll almost always say, I don't say this to scare you, but know this, that that commitment will be tested. Big moments that we have. How many of us, you know, we have, this, we have this breakthrough with one of our kids. You know, we spend a weekend with them and we do something powerful with them and we talk with them and we've had trouble with them and all of a sudden we struggled with them and then we had this great breakthrough weekend and we think, yes, I got this parenting thing down. The kids got the kid thing down and they go to school on Monday and you get a call in the morning and you say, listen, I just want to call you. Junior's been expelled. You know, big moment. It gets tested. How are you going to respond? You go to a retreat. You come to church. God speaks a word into your life and your heart, and it, you well up, and you go, that's it. That's right on. I'm going to live it out. And then you go out in the car, and guess what happens? Junior irks up all over everything, and your new upholstery, or you go out there as a flat tire, or you know your spouse starts chirping at you, and then pretty soon you're fighting, and all of a sudden that word, that thing, the great thing that God did, guess what? It gets tested. And that's just the way it works, loved ones. How many of you, that happened to you? you? You know what I'm talking about. Some of us have embraced this thing called the divine dare. And, and, and I can't wait to share next week just kind of what's happened with the church on that. And I continue to get really, you know, great stories of people saying, Pastor, thanks. It's just been really powerful what's happened. And as a matter of fact, I just got an email yesterday and I just saw it this morning. I'd like to read it to you. And it says this, uh, happy Happy Friday, Pastor Terry. When I, when I first started this challenge, it was really uncomfortable. I made my wife's miserable. Be, my, I made my wife's life miserable 
because I've never in my life given 10% to any church. But it's through your series on money that I realized how I, in, all, in all honesty, I've been robbing God. I remember talking about tithing with you when we first met a year, a little over a year ago, and I, I agreed at that time that I was just going to give uh, $10 each payday. Well, the Sunday you passed out the cards for us to sign and make the agreement to take up on that challenge, I knew without a doubt that I was supposed to do it. It was a time for me to grow up and become responsible, and one of those responsibilities was to give God his portion right off the top. Since I have taken the challenge, I was just given a raise and a new position, and the raise gave back to our family double what I had actually been giving. I'm so thankful for this body of believers. Thank you for challenging me and us to step up as a husband and leader. I know I've made mistakes along the way, but I believe God has used you to continue teaching me and a couple other things, and he just says, I love you, Pastor, and I love those kind of stories. I love those. Because there's people who say, you know what? I'm being challenged, and I know what God wants, and I'm going to do it. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage that brother and that family. That email will be tested. He's excited. God's done this great thing. But you see, the commitment's this. What do you, what, what's your commitment going to be? What are you going to say when you go home and your car blows up and it's going to cost you $1,000? See, then you've got to go. See, it's easy when you get the goodies and, oh, God, hallelujah, you know. But then when something bad happens, what are you going to say? Well, where's God? I mean, I started giving. And see, now you've got two options you can look at. Number one, you can, you can focus on the presence of God, or you can begin to focus on what you would perceive to be the absence of God. Because now you can go to your bank account, take $1,000 off because you've been giving. God's blessed. He's given you a raise. You've become a better steward. And now you just got to dip into your savings, but you can still say, thank you, Lord. I've got savings now. Man, I never, never had that before. Or you can be really, you know, disgruntled and upset at God because you've got to use it. See, that's the way a lot of people think. But everything that we do, loved ones, those great moments in our lives will be tested, even as they were with, just, with Jesus. So after his big moment, the test comes, and Jesus is, is, is compelled by the Spirit to go out there. It's really a strong word. It means to be, the, the word drove into the, into the desert. It means to be cast out. There's literally almost a force and power behind it. It may seem strange that God wanted Jesus to go into this battle out into the desert. A lot of us would say, well, why? That doesn't sound right. I mean, doesn't, doesn't, didn't Jesus pray to say, lead us not into temptation? Well, you have to understand what's taking place here. The word, there's a couple of things. Number one, the word tempted translates into a Greek word that means to test someone to see what kind of person he is. That's a good sense. You go to the DMV and you have to sit in the car and take your driver's test with somebody. That person isn't testing you to cause you to sin or hopefully you're getting a wreck or they're not even trying to flunk you. They want to make sure, though, they want to test you. They want to approve you that you can drive and handle a car in a street situation. So it's, it's all positive. And see, the Father... He comes here, and he's not trying to do Jesus in, but he's trying to show him off. He wants people to see the power that is within this life to overcome evil and the evil one. 
It'd be like if you were to, you want to go to a, you want to buy a Jeep and you go down to the showroom and you're looking and you're salivating over this beautiful Jeep and the salesperson comes up and says, hop in, <coughs> excuse me, hop in. Let's take this thing for a spin. So you say, right on, you jump in, you seatbelt up, you got the roll bars. He goes blowing out of the showroom into the street. He goes blowing through the street and all of a sudden you're off into this kind of desolate area and you go off road, you're going up hills, you're going through rivers and creeks. And I mean, you're just going crazy and this thing is going everywhere, all over the place. Is he trying to destroy it? No, no. He's trying to prove it to you that this is what you want. This is what it can do. And that's what the Father was doing with Jesus. That's what the Spirit, that's what the Trinity was doing here. Now, this whole tempting thing can also be used in a negative sense. When you tempt someone, you solicit them to do evil or make them fail. That's what the devil does. That's what the enemy of your soul does. He does it with Jesus here. God's tests are always to approve us. The devil's always attempts to disapprove us, to cause us to sin, to fail, to fall. So the father sends Jesus out into the wilderness to prove him. But the devil uses this opportunity to tempt Jesus and to try to make him sin. What's the couple of things that I want you to see from this? Well, number one is God does things not to disqualify us, but he always does things to qualify us. See, sometimes we see this God up there that he's just waiting for us to make a mistake so he can say, see, I told you, Bobby couldn't do it. Sally couldn't handle it. Yeah, just a bunch of loser humans. No, God doesn't operate that way. He's for us. He's not against us. He wants to qualify us, not disqualify us, but you can't become qualified without going through this process. Understand, too, that that God is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. Jesus was being prepared to be able to face the onslaughts of the enemy so that by the time he got to the garden and the garden of Gethsemane and faced this onslaught of the attack of the enemy again, he would be ready to face that when he wanted to bail and ditch the cross. So God is beginning at the very inception and inauguration of his ministry. He is beginning to prepare him for what he has prepared for him. And that's part of the desert experience. So what you see is in the desert, Jesus begins his ministry by spending 40 days there. So Jesus has his great public kickoff then he disappears for 40 days. See, the desert is kind of significant, loved ones, because that's where you learn a few things. In Exodus 34, Moses went up on the mountain and he received the law, 40 days alone with God. In Numbers 13, the 12 spies went to explore the promised land for 40 days to see if they could take it. So they were preparing for a battle that unfortunately they never fought, even though God had led them to. 1 Samuel 17, the Israelites heard Goliath's taunts for 40 days before David finally came, this little teenager with a slingshot under the power of God, and took him out. 40 days they were waiting for someone to come and do battle. 1 Kings 19, Elijah battles the prophets of Baal, takes him on and destroys him. And then he's so spiritually depleted, he's on the run and doesn't eat more than one meal like for 40 days. And then God has to come and prop him up after the battle, take care of him. 
So Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days, and we know he went in to do battle specifically with the devil. But did you know that there's other reasons why Jesus goes into the desert? Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went to a solitary place where he prayed. Notice those words, solitary place. It's the same word that is translated desert, eremos. Jesus went into the desert or the wilderness to pray. Mark chapter 6, verse 31 says this, then because so many people were coming and going that the disciples didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Again, that word quiet place, it's Eremos, the desert. That's where Jesus would go. That's where Jesus would take his little brain trust of followers to be alone, to eat, to rest. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and he prayed, lonely places, Eremos again. So Jesus would withdraw to the desert and he would pray. What is it about the desert that drew Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why, because it didn't draw other people. People weren't massing out there to go hang out. I hate the desert. I mean, it's desolate, it's just dry, and people didn't go out there. But he would. Why? Because he wanted to hear from the Father. He would use it as a time to recalibrate his heart, his spirit, and his life for his mission. He would use it to go out there and connect with the Father. Jesus could go and be alone, step back from the crowds, the noise, the pressures, and the demands, and simply be with his Father. He could fast. He could pray. That's one of the reasons, loved ones, why we put such an emphasis here on this thing called journaling or PB&J. And you may not be familiar with that, but it's not peanut butter and jelly, but it's prayer, Bible, and journaling. And just a few weeks ago, you received a little slip that was for March and April that had Bible verses on it. And what we encourage people to do with that is to simply read along each day. Well, you may not be able to... If you were to follow that... uh, through the whole year, you would actually read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice. But sometimes people say, I just don't have enough time to read. Okay, then just focus on the New Testament because you could probably read the New Testament passages and even write down one thought in about 20 minutes each day. And we encourage you to do that. Why? Because Jesus knew the word. That's why he could battle the enemy of his soul and your soul. Think about this. I want to challenge you with this, that you would spend 20 minutes with Jesus at least four or five times um, a week, four or or five days a week. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks a little bit more when we see Jesus specifically getting away for the Father. But can you imagine how that could revolutionize your life? Think about this. You have trouble with one of your kids. They're just kind of going sideways. You feel like you've lost communication and connection with them. Could you imagine if you took five, six, seven days and you said for 20 or 30 minutes, I'm going to look at my kid. There's going to be no technology, no iPhones, iPads, cell phones, whatever. No TV. I'm just going to look at them. We're going to go and we're going to talk. We're going to walk. We're going to go to McDonald's and look at each other across the table. Could you imagine what that might do for your relationship? 
Maybe your marriage, maybe it's, maybe the pizzazz of your marriage has lost the fizz and you're wondering, it is, you know, what's, that's just putting in time. Could you imagine relationally what would happen if you turned off the technology, the iPhones, the iPads, the TV, the stereo, and for 20 or 30 minutes every night you sat with your spouse face to face and just talked about the things that were important in your life, in your relationship in your love for one another, in your love for Jesus. Could you imagine how that could potentially revolutionize where your relationship is now? Well, preacher, for how long are we going to have to do that? (laughs) Well, I would say as long as it takes. But what if you just started for 40 days? Because significant things can happen in 40 days. New habits can be established. A life can be remade. A marriage can be remade. A relationship can be rebuilt. Well, I'm feeling distant from God. Okay. What about 20 minutes a day for 40 days? Where you just say, Jesus, I don't get it, but I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read, I'm going to read one page or one chapter in this New Testament, starting the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Luke. And then I just, I'm going to pray, say, speak to me. Let me find one thought in this passage today. You know what I'm doing now? You know I love to journal. I love to write. And, and I, but my, my, I am cutting back on my, you know, I used to write like three, four, two, three paragraphs for, you know, in my journal. Now I'm trying to get one thought And it's usually now about two or three sentences. And then I just say, that's what I'm going to do today. Or that's what the Lord is speaking to me today. God doesn't grade your paper. He doesn't weigh it to see how much volume to it. He just says, I just want to teach you something today. I want there to be my life in you today. I want you to receive from me today. Can you imagine what would happen in your spiritual life, loved ones, if you did that? I want to challenge you. Take the 2040 challenge. 20 minutes in the word with Jesus in prayer, maybe jot down a thought and do it for 40 days. I dare you. You're going to get tired of all my dares, but I dare you. Let's look at the battle very quickly. Jesus goes into battle. He's got through baptism had the affirmation of the Father. Now he's in this desert, and we understand it's a significant place, but now the battle. He's in there, and he's tempted by the devil. He's locked in this mortal battle that he has to win for humanity, for you, and for me. And Luke gives this more detail, but there's a few things I want you to know about battles. Battles are a part of spiritual life and life in general. When you sign on with Jesus, it's not going to be... Uh, just, just remember the old song, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden? That's really true. I really dated myself there, but um, all the gray hairs laughed and uh, the younger were going, what? But there's a song, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. And don't promise people that because when you engage in Jesus, your life is not going to be easy. You are going to be doing battle with the things that you thought were all right are no longer going to be so good. And that's a good thing. Because now you're going to have to learn to say yes to things and no to certain things. 
and maybe notice things that other people say yes to, Christians as well. It's what Jesus is speaking to you and his word. So battle is a part of it. Now hear me, you know, a lot of people want to get really spiritual and forget that sometimes it's there, you know, there's a lot of things that we battle with that really aren't battles, they're just stupidity. It's bad decisions. And don't go blaming the devil or God for that. It's really, but there's going to be battles that you have to face. The second thing that's the key point is battles are fought in public, but one in private. See, Jesus, the rest of his ministry after this, this is his big battle. And a lot of our battles might be in public, but they're really won in private. See, Jesus won his battle. We don't even know when he was memorizing scripture, but somewhere in his life, he was memorizing scripture. So by the time he got to this battle, he was able to face it. And sometimes people think like, wow, boy, Sunday morning, this is the big battle for PT. Are you kidding me? My battle happens Tuesday through Saturday. Because what happens Tuesday through Saturday really determines what happens with the crowd. See, what happens when your life in the privacy is really what, what happens privately in your life really determines what's going to happen in your marriage. It determines what's going to happen with your kids and in your family. It's going to determine what happens with your job. So your biggest battles are really here inside. Are you winning those battles? So I want you to see some of the tests and the battles that you'll face. These are common to all because they lead each one of us to more depth of character, self-discipline, and integrity. And I know people, Christians, I don't know why, but we just don't like that D word. Discipline. But the scripture's clear. Paul says to his little mentoree, Timothy, and he says, discipline yourself unto godliness. See, we just kind of want God to go, bloop, little pixie dust of discipline, and we just become this great person of God. But it really doesn't happen, loved ones. It's day by day by day by day. And you know what it really, you know where the character comes from? It comes from these wilderness desert experiences when you're tempted and you say, no, 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 no. Or you're tempted to take a shortcut and you say, no, 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 no. Or you know to do something and you'll say, yes, 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 I'm going to do it. So here's the test. The first one is the test of appetites. Luke 4, 3 says this, the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. As I said, the limestones begin to look like these little loaves of bread. So Jesus is hungry, and I can just, you know, man, oh, that would be so good. You know, get a little bit of, you know, desert fresh bread. So what's the devil saying? He says, listen, use your own power. Turn these things into bread. It's really the test for self-gratification, and it questions the Father's provision. Jesus, do it now. You're hungry because I, who knows when in the world the Father's ever going to come through for you. And he's dealing in this temptation here, the appetites. We all have these three key appetites, don't we? Food, drink, sex. Can I tell you something? No one is truly free until one is disciplined in these areas. I see it all the time. People always want to take a shortcut in these areas. And you'll never experience true freedom 
until you're disciplined in these areas. And one of the heaviest burdens of freedom is this self-imposed discipline that we have to have to control these appetites. But true freedom demands self-control. It's part of the Spirit's delicious fruit. We'll have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Because then when you have self-control, you can live within God's timetable. You can be patient for what God wants to do. It's like the man who prayed, Lord, is it true that a million years is like a second to you? Lord said, yes. Wow, is it true then like a million dollars is like a penny to you? And the Lord said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's about equivalent. That's right. And the guy goes, hey, Lord, can I, just, can I just have a penny? And the Lord said, sure, just a second. <laughs> See? Yeah. You guys got it over here? But see, that's how God is. And we don't understand his time frames and timetables. But we have to become comfortable with it and to trust his provision and timing. Secondly, there's the test of greed and power, Luke 4, 5, and 8. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you the splendor and their, their splendor and their authority because it's been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you will worship me, all will be yours. That's a great thing about the enemy. He always wants to make a deal with us. But Jesus came here to establish the kingdom of God by what? By dying on the cross. So the devil suggests, here's a shortcut. Just trust me. And I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. What's he doing? He's questioning the father's promise. Will the father really come through and bring about what he wants? No, take a shortcut, get it your way. See, when one is free from the need for power, then he's ready to handle authority. And this was a test of temptation for Jesus, for power and greed. And his trap for Jesus was that he'd have to sacrifice his integrity and character for the power, not trusting God's promise to him. Hear me, whatever you compromise to gain, you'll ultimately lose. If Jesus would have compromised, he would have lost everything, and so would we have. And the last test is the test of motives. Luke 4, 9 and 10, he says, so he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. What he's questioning here is the father's protection. Because see, this is a quote from the scripture already about Jesus being, about God protecting him, protecting his own, Psalm 91. So the devil says, throw yourself down. Make God prove it. See, this was a temptation for Jesus to take a shortcut to instant fame and sudden success. See, had Jesus done this, he would have become famous instantly because at this time, there probably would have been, you know, during the day to any day, going to the temple, there would have been hundreds, potentially thousands of people. And all of a sudden, hey, who's that up on the pinnacle of the temple for crying out? Oh, I think it's Jesus. Whoa, doing a swan dive. Whew, he lives. Oh, the Messiah. Uh, but it would have been his choice, his way, and the devil's way. Not God's way. And see, this shortcut would have bypassed the process of character formation necessary for Jesus to be responsible with his freedom so he could help us possess our freedom. 
And see, a lot of times it's the same thing even with you and your kids, isn't it? Did you realize that, you know, if you're not a fairly disciplined person, you can't discipline your kids. It doesn't make sense to them. So we end up just punishing them. But when you're disciplined, you can be not disciplined. When you're free, you can give freedom. And that's what Jesus does. So to be truly free, you have to go through the process of character development. And it's never easy. True success is never instant. You, be, you, you become a sudden saint when you come to Jesus Christ. It's like a, uh, what, what do you call it, a you know, picture that, you know, you do the knitting. Have you ever seen that, the, 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 where the, the knitted side looks really nice and smooth and cool and hostage? Thank you, cross-stitch. Yeah, I've, thank you. Cross-stitch. You, you see that one side that's perfect? That's, that's, how, that's how God sees us because he sees Jesus in us. And he looks at that and he goes, whoa, what a great looking, that Terry, man, incredible. I love that guy. Well, then you, you, and then you look at the other side and you see all the knots and you see all the junk and it's what you guys get to see and you go, are you kidding me? I don't get it. How does he get to do this? I mean, you see it all. And that, but don't laugh because it's the same for you. Jesus sees you. I mean, God sees you that way. And, and you've got all these little knots on this side as well. And see, those knots begin to get trimmed and moved. And you become smoother. And you can begin to see the picture of Jesus on, the side of you, on, on that side of you as you go through this character process. And you begin to take on the image of the living God become more like him. In our marriage group the other night, one of the guys um, was telling a story, but he's got this opportunity right now where he might be able to, he's getting, as a matter of fact, he just accepted this last Friday, he told me after service. And uh, for a startup company that's got great potential, and you know startups, they can you know make you billions or they can set you back. But he was telling us in the marriage group to pray for that because he said, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to be a part of a startup. Well, that startup did really well. They just sold for millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I probably would have been millions of dollars ahead right now if I would have started with that company. But he made this really wonderful statement, very astute. He said, you know something? This is what I know today. If I would have done it back then, I couldn't have handled it. Now I'm ready. Because God has brought me to this place and matured me. See, friends, that's the thing that we, everybody wants to be the super saint, the sudden person, the great person, but you can never get there until you go through the process here. And that takes time. It takes character. It takes walking with Christ. So here's the thought. The devil will always tempt us to fail and to fall. It says that he tailored temptations for Jesus. Do you think he might just do the same for you? Do you think he knows your weaknesses? Do you think he knows what really tempts you? Yeah. Can I tell you something? Temptation is always personal. It always comes to take you down. And this is one of the things, I'm going to close with this, that you need to know. You're not alone. Even though the devil knows your weaknesses and tempts you accordingly, don't ever think that you're the only person that's been tempted in the way that you're being tempted right now, past, present, or future. 
Everybody has been tempted. Basically, you could take almost all, every temptation you face and lock them into one of these three temptations that Jesus faced. Scripture says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except that it's common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. You're not alone, loved ones. Whatever temptation you're faced, others have faced it. And this is the critical piece. Jesus has faced it. Remember when I said in Luke 4, 4, uh, 4 it said this, that Jesus, when he faced every Temptation. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Oh, thank God somebody can overcome it. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Because you're not alone. Jesus has already been there and done that. He's been tempted like you, and he never sinned. He is the prototype that has gone before us. He's been tempted in every way, but he's overcome. He gets it. That's why you can go to him, loved ones, and say, I need help, because he will be able to be a compassionate Savior who can go, I know, I remember, been there, experienced that. And when you really believe that, you know you can go and receive mercy and find grace and help in your time of need. I uh, told a story a couple years ago, very private, very personal, and I'm going to tell again because it really fits into this and how I deal with temptation now. I know scriptures, and I'm going to talk about this, the last part that I'm not going to get to today in this talk. I'll talk about it in two weeks when we talk about Jesus and the Word and getting with the Father. But I told you that a couple of years ago, I, I grew up, you know, I'm, I was telling the staff and some other people this week, I, I was fortunate that I, I, was, I, I didn't grow up in the computer area as a young person where I had this proclivity toward pornography to get addicted. It's just never been an issue with me. Now, growing up, I saw a lot of girly magazines and, um, you know, but that's about as far as it went that I become a Christ follower and it's never been an issue. But two years ago, something come on the news about a picture that went viral on some Hollywood movie star. And I don't know why to this day, but, there was, there was a compulsion in me. It was a, kind of a semi-nude picture or something, but there was this compulsion in me to go see it, go on the computer and see it. And I, and I told this story uh, to the church a couple of years ago, and I was, I literally, I got to my mouse, and I got my computer in my office at home, and I was gonna, I was literally one click away from bringing it up. And I didn't. And when I, when I thought about it, I was, I was thinking, well, uh, you know, and I wasn't white knuckling. It was just kind of almost this moment of peace. And I realized, oh, man, Jesus is right here. <laughs> and I was just really embarrassed, you know. And, and it was kind of like, well, hello, Jesus. And it was kind of like, I kind of had this internal thing like, well, hello, how are you today? I'm good. <laughs> what are you up to? 
feel good, you know. Um, but I, I just, you know, and it was just kind of this little sweet little dialogue. And what I realized at that time, I just said, Jesus, this isn't who I am. This isn't what I want to do. I wanted to look at this picture really bad, but I know I really don't. And I know I shouldn't. There it is. And you know, as soon as, and and that sounds really kind of weird, and it wasn't quite that long. It was just nanoseconds of dialogue and thought like that. But by the time I worked through that and realized he was right there, the temptation was gone, and I haven't had it since. And hear me, it's not because I'm so good or I'm so strong, but I think this is one of the key things that I learned from that is when you get to those places of temptation, appetites, pride, fame, greed, in that dark office or that dark spot when your hand's right on it, when your mind's going this way, the best thing you can do is say, hi, Jesus, I know you're here. Help me. I, I, I don't want to do this. It's not me. It's not how you made me. And instead of running in the dark and stumbling, instead of running away and still staying in the dark and getting lost further in whatever it is, do this. Stay right there. Hi, Jesus. You're the light of the world, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Could you just bring that light into my darkness right now? Could you just dispel the darkness of my thinking, my heart, my hand now? And you know what you find out? You can get out of the darkness. Oh, you know what? No, 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 no. You don't find that out. What you find out is Jesus takes and overtakes the darkness. Because this is what he says, for, uh, John 1, 9. He lights every man and every woman. But it says that sometimes the world loved their darkness and not the light. So if you begin to love Jesus more than your darkness, guess what happens? He can invade your darkness. And it isn't about white knuckling it. I'm going to press it. I'm not going to press it. Oh, I did or I didn't. No, it's Jesus because you know what he's not going to do? He's not going to go. He didn't, you know, I didn't feel like, oh, Terry, you're a preacher, loser, jerk. What are you, are you kidding me? Aren't you beyond this? No, it wasn't that at all. He basically let me do the talk and invite him in. No condemnation. And that's what he wants to do for every one of us in our temptation. You know why he can do that? Because Adam and Eve in the garden, when God said, I love you so much, stay away from this one tree, and they still disobeyed because they wanted to go their own way when they were tempted by the, the enemy of their soul. God said, if you, you do that, you're going to die. And guess what? They did die because they ate of that one tree. But then God looked at Jesus and he said, you're going to, I want you now to go die on a tree. You know what Jesus said? Okay, Father, I'll do it. And then he went, got baptized. Then he won the biggest epic battle before the Garden of Gethsemane. And guess what? 
Then he went to the tree and he died because he submitted to the Father's plan because of his love for him and makes it possible for you and I now to do the same thing. We can win the battle. Because Colossians 2 says that because of Jesus' death on the cross, he's triumphed over everything and brings his light into our darkness. I love that. I'm so thankful for that. I am so hopeful because of that. That's the gospel, loved ones. The temptation you face is be overcome because Jesus died on the tree and rose again. Thank you.